You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. In 2022, something very strange happened on the popular music charts. A fairly obscure song from 1985 wound up ascending to number one virtually all over the world because that song happened to feature on the popular television show Stranger Things. Now, this song is about a woman who wants to make a deal with God so that she might better understand her boyfriend. And the song expresses her frustration at her relationship difficulties and her inability to make this deal with God. Now, we shouldn't take our theology from pop music. And the idea that people should bargain with the Almighty, that's the stuff of paganism, not Christianity. But I do think that all of us at times have encountered frustrations like the woman in this song. We have encountered hard times which have left us wanting answers, which make us say, I want to talk to God about this, not in the sense of prayer, but in the sense of having a direct, personal, face-to-face encounter with God where we put our questions to Him and He gives us answers. And yet, despite this common desire, friends, we cannot have that kind of encounter with God in this life because God is invisible. We cannot see him and encounter him in the way that we encounter one another. And while God is omnipresent, his throne, his ultimate dwelling place is not on earth. It's not someplace we can go visit him to have this kind of meeting. And friends, God is not accountable to us. He does not owe us answers. And his ways are infinitely higher than ours. Even if he should give us answers, we wouldn't be able to understand them. And man cannot look on God and live because he is holy and we are not. And these truths may make our hard times seem even harder because we cry out to God for help, seeking answers, and often it seems like the response we get is just silence. It can feel like there is an impenetrable barrier, a vast gulf, separating us from God. And that's painful. And that's hard. And we see this feeling described in the Bible in Psalm 88, verse 13. O Lord, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Or the prophet Habakkuk wrote, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Sometimes we need God's help, and He just seems so distant from us. And that's how Job felt when his life fell apart. Job 9.32, he said, God is not a man as I am, that I might answer Him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay His hand on us both. As Job's life imploded, he wanted to ask God some questions, and he realized that God just seemed inaccessible to him. And so he cried out for a mediator, for someone to bridge that gap, for someone to connect him to God. But to Job, this seemed like an impossibility. And this is one of the reasons I think Job lived in the earliest days of world history, in the days of the patriarchs. Because by the time God had formed the nation of Israel and given them his law, God had created a form of mediation a way for man to approach God through the Levitical priesthood, who Hebrews 5.1 says, acted on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The priesthood allowed people to approach God in a limited way. It was a vast improvement over how things were in Job's time, but it was still imperfect. People could not approach God directly. Physically, they were barred from even entering his temple building. They had to stand outside at his altar, approaching only with an animal sacrifice for their sins, hoping their priest would get the rituals right. And man, those priests were often weak and sinful. Far too often they were corrupt. 
And so humanity was given some mediation in Old Covenant Judaism, the religion of the Old Testament. But it was partial, it was imperfect, it was not ultimate or final. But friends, there is good news today, which is God has provided us a better, perfect mediator. A priest who surpasses the priesthood of Old Covenant Judaism, and that priest is Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And today, as we continue our look at the book of Hebrews, we're going to talk about the priesthood of Jesus. And today, in Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to see that Jesus is a better priest than the priests in Old Covenant Judaism. Because while the Old Testament priests were members of the tribe of Levi and descendants of Aaron, Jesus is a different, a better kind of priest, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And today we're going to talk about what that means and why that means Jesus is a better priest and a better mediator to bring us to God than anything found in the Old Testament. So today we have just two points. First, we're going to ask, who was Melchizedek? And then second, we'll see Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek and is therefore better than the Levitical priesthood of Old Covenant Judaism. Let's start with our first point, who was Melchizedek? Last week, we considered the example of Abraham, who showed us the life of faith and patience which inherits the promises. Now our author points again to another incident from Abraham's life, which is in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham is living in Canaan, and he gets mixed up in a war. One group of local kings attacks another group of local kings, and there's a big battle fought by the Dead Sea. And the group that won captured a bunch of plunder, and they kidnapped Abraham's nephew Lot. Now, when this was reported to Abraham, he responded quickly with decisive action. Genesis 14, 14 says, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abraham was rich, and he had so many men in his employ, he could mobilize them as his personal army and defeat the combined forces of these raiding kings. And so Abraham rescued Lot and the other folks taken captive, and he recovered this plunder which these invaders had seized, And Abraham, being generous, decided to return the plunder to its rightful owner, the the king of Sodom and his allies. Genesis 14, verse 17 says, After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now Melchizedek's appearance in this story is rather abrupt. He's not been introduced before. And when he is introduced, his introduction is remarkable in what it lacks. In the first 13 chapters of Genesis, pretty much everybody who shows up is introduced with reference to their ancestry. But Melchizedek is not introduced as the son of someone, nor is there a genealogy which is connected to him, although Genesis is filled with genealogies. Now, Melchizedek just appears seemingly out of nowhere. And we're told he is the king of Salem, probably Jerusalem. And in addition to being a king, we're also told that he was a priest of God Most High. This is the first time in the Bible that anybody's called a priest. Now, what his priesthood entailed is unclear. But what is clear is that Abraham was not the only person in the world in that day who knew or feared God. Melchizedek did too. And Melchizedek pronounced a priestly blessing upon Abraham, and he brought out bread and wine. 
Now, this was probably just refreshment for Abraham and his weary men. But when we consider the fact that Melchizedek is so closely connected to Jesus in our passage, I think this is a suggestive thing. It evokes another picture of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Now, Abraham responds to Melchizedek and his blessing by paying him a tithe, giving him a tenth of the plunder. And then Melchizedek disappears. That's not to say he disappeared in a puff of smoke. This isn't a movie. But in these three verses, he's talking to Abraham, and then afterwards he's gone, and we never see him again in Genesis. And at first you might think, well, hey, I guess this means Melchizedek wasn't very important. But later his name appears again in a very important part of the Bible in Psalm 110, a psalm of David, which is the passage of the Old Testament most often quoted in the New Psalm 110 is a prophecy about the Messiah, and it famously begins like this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here David speaks to a figure that David calls my Lord. And the next verse in the psalm identifies this figure, David's Lord, as carrying a scepter and ruling from Zion, which is Jerusalem. So David here is speaking about a king, a king that David regards as his Lord, a king greater than David. Now this is totally contrary to the way people thought in the ancient world. In our culture, people love what's younger and newer. In the ancient world, people venerated what was older. The ancestor was always greater than the descendant. But here David... The great king, the founder of a royal dynasty, hails one of his descendants as being better than him. How could that be? Who is this descendant? Well, from the earliest days, this was understood to be the Messiah. And Psalm 110 says that God will invite the Messiah, this king, to sit at his right hand as his equal, dispensing his power and rule to the world. But that's not all. Because Psalm 110, verse 4, God then speaks again to the Messiah. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here Melchizedek appears again. And in this verse in which the Messianic king is declared to be a priest, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, after the pattern of Melchizedek. In Genesis 14, Melchizedek was a king and a priest. The Messiah will also be a king and a priest. Now, this would have been very surprising to the ancient Israelites because in the Old Testament, God had ordained a separation of powers. The priests were descended from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. The kings were descended from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. Nobody could hold both the kingly and priestly office. On two occasions, kings did try to usurp the priesthood. Both ended disastrously in judgment. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul, Israel's first king, tried to offer the burnt offering we talked about in Sunday school today. And the result was God ended Saul's kingdom. Likewise, in 2 Chronicles, 20, 26, 2 Chronicles 26, a pretty good king, Uzziah, became filled with pride one day, went into the temple and burned incense to God. Now only the priest could go in the temple or burn incense. And for this sin, Uzziah was struck with leprosy. And so for an Israelite, the idea that a king could be a priest would be a shocking idea, but that's what Psalm 110 says will be true about the Messiah. But how could the Messiah be a priestly king when kings couldn't be priests, well, Psalm 110 explains. The Messiah is not going to be a priest like other Old Testament priests. He's not going to be a Levitical priest. He will be a different kind of priest, a priest king like Melchizedek. And this is the idea that Hebrews 7 develops. Jesus, God's son, is the Messiah. He is therefore a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which means he is better than all the priests of the Old Covenant. That's the big idea today. 
Now, our author begins his argument by summarizing Genesis 14. If you've got a Bible, look now at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now our author begins to comment on this summary. Verse 2. He... Uh, Melchizedek is first by translation of his name king of righteousness and then he is also king of Salem that is king of peace. First thing our author does is translate Melchizedek's name and title. His name is the combination of the Hebrew words meaning king and righteousness and his title is king of Salem which means king of peace. Now just like that bread and wine this is evocative. A righteous king, a prince of peace, these titles are later applied to the Messiah in prophecies like Isaiah 9, verse 6. To us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Our author sees a connection between Melchizedek and Jesus the Messiah. And he sees this connection all the clearer in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is a hard verse to understand. And over the centuries, some people reading this verse have concluded that it is teaching that Melchizedek was a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. But I don't think that's correct. Because if that's what our author wanted to say, he could have just said it. But instead of saying that Melchizedek was Jesus, instead our author says he only resembles the Son of God. So the argument here is not that Melchizedek is Jesus. Rather, there are powerful and significant similarities between Melchizedek and Jesus in his name and title. And in verse 3, our author highlights other parallels which emerge from the strange way that Melchizedek just appears and then disappears in the middle of Genesis. When Melchizedek was introduced, he lacked a genealogy, which almost everybody else in Genesis has. He lacks a record of having a mother or father. Now, I don't think our author's denying that Melchizedek literally had parents. Even Jesus had a mother. But I think this is pointing to the fact that when you read Genesis, Melchizedek's parentage is not identified. And that's pretty much unique in that book. And unlike pretty much everybody else in Genesis, Melchizedek's fate is not recorded. We don't know how many years he lived. We don't know how or when he died. And in this lack of a recorded beginning or ending, Melchizedek is similar to the Son of God, who truly has no beginning or ending, who is truly eternal and immortal. You just look at the page of Genesis, it looks like Melchizedek appears a priest forever. And in this, our author sees a similarity with Psalm 110, which says the Messiah will be a priest after Melchizedek's pattern forever. And all of this points to Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is God in human flesh, who has no beginning because he is truly God, and who has no ending because of his eternal resurrection life. And so according to Psalm 110, Jesus the Messiah is a priest like Melchizedek, a priest after Melchizedek's pattern. But what is the significance of that truth? Well, that's what we see now in our second point. Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, so he is better than the Levitical priesthood of Old Covenant Judaism. Now, let's remind ourselves what's going on in this book. Our author is writing to a church of professing Christians, and many members in that church were drifting away from the faith. They weren't interested in being Christians anymore because they feared persecution, and they sought safety by just blending into the Judaism of their day. 
And we have now seen why they thought discarding Jesus in the name of self-preservation was a good idea. Because they were terribly spiritually immature. Despite having been around the faith for a long time, these folks were content to just cling to the most basic non-confrontational truths. And they were lazy, disinterested in the things of God, stunted in spiritual growth. And so our author writes this book to wake these folks up and say, hey, what are you doing? Don't leave the faith. Jesus is better than everything in Judaism, which is tempting you. And so far in this book, we've seen Jesus is better than the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And Jesus is better than the angels. And Jesus is better than Israel's great leaders, Moses and Joshua. And now we're in the biggest theological section of this book, which says Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood, the, the core of Old Covenant Judaism. And if Jesus is better than the core of Judaism, don't leave Jesus for Judaism. Hold fast to Jesus. Now, to help these folks remain in the faith, our author here is going to force them to do some growing up by forcing them to grapple with some difficult doctrine. These folks had refused to move beyond the basics, and our author's solution is to immerse them in the difficult truth of the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ and to show them it's better than the Jewish priesthood. And in the rest of chapter 7, our author shows that Jesus is better for seven reasons. Reason number one, Melchizedek is greater than Levi. And Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, so he is better than the priests descended from Levi. Look at verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, this is an argument that comes from Genesis 14 and highlights two events from that chapter. Number one, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And verse 7 says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, we might imagine that when Melchizedek met Abraham, it would be Abraham who pronounced the blessings because Abraham was really important. God had given him the Abrahamic covenant, and Abraham is the father of faith, and all believers are Abraham's spiritual descendants, and in Abraham's offspring all the nations shall be blessed. Abraham was great. But when he met Melchizedek, it was Melchizedek who did the blessing, and Abraham accepted that. He conceded Melchizedek was greater than he was. So Melchizedek is great indeed. And if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, he's also greater than Levi. Because as we said earlier, in the ancient world, the ancestor is greater than the descendant. Now, Levi is descended from Abraham. So if Melchizedek's greater than Abraham, then he's also greater than Levi. We also see this proved in a second event in Genesis 14, that Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, giving him a tenth of his income, the plunder that he recovered. Tithing was something God required in the Old Testament, mandating that the Israelites support the tribe of Levi with a tenth of all they produced in a year. Because the tribe of Levi's work was very important. They were leading in the worship of God. And so the other Israelites honored and supported them with tithes. Even within the tribe of Levi, those who were not priests paid tithes to those who were, showing greater honor to those who led God's worship. Well, in Genesis 14, Melchizedek received a tithe. Not under the Old Testament law, because the law hadn't been given yet. Not by Israelites, because there weren't any Israelites yet. And yet, despite the law and Israel not existing, Melchizedek got a tithe. He was shown the priestly honor. And who paid him this honor? Abraham, 
the father of faith. Abraham honored Melchizedek with a tithe, again testifying to Melchizedek's superiority. But the argument goes further still, because Levi was descended from Abraham. So when Abraham paid Melchizedek, it's like Levi was there in Abraham paying a tithe to Melchizedek through Abraham. So Levi is inferior to Melchizedek. And so the conclusion is, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and Levi, so the priesthood patterned upon Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood patterned upon Levi. The second reason that we know Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood is that the scriptures testify the Levitical priesthood will become obsolete. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. When we think about the Old Testament law, we tend to think about the Ten Commandments and the other commands about personal ethics and interpersonal conduct. And we tend to think of those things as the core of the system and the priesthood and the sacrifices and all that we tend to view as just an add-on, an appendix, easily dispensed with while the core ethical commands remain intact. But these verses in chapter 7 show that that totally misunderstands the heart of the Old Testament. The foundation of the Old Testament law was not the ethical commands. It was the commands related to the ceremonial worship of God. And I would humbly submit you will know this if you actually read the law. Because there are something like seven times more commands related to the priesthood, the sanctuary, and the sacrifices than there are about personal ethics. The regulation of worship and the priesthood is the foundation of the Old Testament law and the entire Old Covenant that stood upon it. That's why verse 11 says, under it, under the priesthood, people receive the law, because the priesthood is the foundation of the whole system. And verse 12, which says, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The priesthood and ceremonial worship of God is not just some appendix to the Old Testament law and the Old Covenant. No, it is the foundation. It is the heart of the whole thing. Such that a change to the priesthood overturns the whole system. That's what it says. Now, all of this means that if God's plan for the ages was the eternality of the Old Covenant then God's plan would have been that the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system should stand forever. But what does the Old Testament actually say? Not that the old priesthood will stand forever. Psalm 110 prophesied the coming of a new priesthood, this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. If God's plan for the ages, if his plan to save a people for his own possession was just the old covenant and the old law, why would he bring about a new priesthood? Why would there be a coming priestly king, a priest descended from Judah, which never happened before, if God's intent was just to leave the old in place forever? No, Psalm 110 shows that the Old Testament itself anticipated a new priesthood was coming. And that testifies to the fact that the old covenant and the old priesthood were always to be temporary and would someday be phased out. And why is that? Well, verse 18 says, The old priesthood is set aside 
because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. There are some things the old law just can't do. Yes, the old covenant held out the hope of forgiveness from sin, if you had true faith in God, evidenced through participation in the sacrificial system. But as we said at the start of this sermon, the mediation of the Old Testament priests was imperfect. So much depended on frail, sinful men. And while it's wonderful to have forgiveness of sin, friends, what we have in Jesus today is so much more and so much better than what the ancient Israelites had. In Christ, we don't just have forgiveness. We have regeneration. We are made new. 2 Corinthians 5 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who secures us. Ephesians 1 says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And friends, we are freed not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Romans 6 says, Our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And now we have access directly to God through the superior priesthood of Jesus, like the end of chapter 6 says, about the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, our hope which is inside the curtain. The old covenant couldn't offer any of that. For God's plan to come to pass, to win us and transform us and prepare us for glory, the old covenant couldn't do it. It had to be replaced. And what replaced it is different and better. What defined the old priesthood? Bodily descent from Levi and Aaron. What defines the new priesthood? Not bodily descent. Please understand the issue here is not that God has taken the priesthood from Levi and given it to Judah. No. The idea is the new priesthood is not about who you're descended from. It's about the power of an indestructible life, our passage says. See, Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he only appears to live forever because his death is not recorded. But he didn't actually live forever. But the promised priest who follows the pattern of Melchizedek does actually live forever. Because Psalm 110 says that God swore that this priest after the order of Melchizedek would serve forever. And how do you serve forever? Only if you live forever. There has to be an indestructible life. And friends, that's talking about only Jesus, who died for our sins, who rose from the grave. And friends, Jesus will never die again. Romans 6, 9 says, Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus has triumphed over death. He lives forever. And so he is qualified to be this new and better kingly priest after the order of Melchizedek. The third reason Jesus' priesthood is better is that it is secured by an oath. Look at verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. In chapter 6, we saw that God swore an oath, speaking about the promises that our salvation is anchored upon. Hebrews 6.17 says that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God swears oaths not because we need to be worried that he's going to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. No, God swears an oath to give his people assurance that his word is good. Now, God's word would have been good anyway, even if he hadn't sworn an oath. But God, graciously wanting to build our faith, swore an oath to give us a strong encouragement to keep us holding firmly to the gospel. In the same way, God the Father swore an oath when he appointed Jesus, his son, to be a priest. Psalm 110 verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God never swore an oath like that about any Levitical priest. But God swore that about Jesus' priesthood. So the Father has given believers his confirmation that he stands behind the eternal priesthood of the Son. 
Now, this has a massive implication. Because verses 11 and 12 tell us the Old Testament priesthood was the foundation of the Old Testament law and the Old Covenant between God and Israel. Such that if the priesthood should change, the whole system has changed. Well, now we learn the priesthood has changed to something better, to something more sure. And so that means the old law and the whole old covenant, it's ended, it's changed. And we're going to see next week in chapter 8, the new covenant has entered force. And the foundation of that new covenant is this new priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus, which is a better priesthood, which is secured by God's oath. And so this leads to the conclusion in verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus secures for all of us who believe in him a better, more direct, and more complete relationship with God than anything ancient Israel had. And we can have confidence in that because of the oath God swore in Psalm 110. The fourth reason we know Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood is that it lasts forever. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. There had to be so many priests across the years because there were so many sacrifices that had to be offered. And the priests died off. And someone had to take their place to keep offering those sacrifices and so you wind up with this massive priestly lineage across the years because of the problem of death. But that's not the case for the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. You don't need many of those kind of priests. You just need one because he isn't going to die. He isn't going to be replaced because God has sworn he will stay in office forever. His life is eternal in duration. And one everlasting priest is infinitely better than an endless succession of weak, sinful priests who are mortal. Now this exposes one of many errors in the Mormon church. Because the Mormons claim that every male over the age of 18 in their church is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Friends, that is a blasphemous lie. The criterion for this priesthood is eternal life, and the Mormons don't have that. Only Jesus does. He alone serves in this priesthood. Now, this brings us to the fifth reason why Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. It offers complete salvation. Look at verse 25, one of the great verses in the Bible. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 19 told us the problem with the Old Covenant. The law made nothing perfect. The law was a good gift from God. It was a lot better than things in Job's day. But man, the Old Covenant lacked many benefits believers today enjoy. It was limited in what it could accomplish. But praise God, that era is now over because Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews 8.13 speaks of a new covenant which makes the first one obsolete. And it says what is, what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. The old era, the old covenant, have been superseded by the new. Romans 8.3 says what God has done, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. God has done in the new covenant what the old covenant could not do. And what that means is that today in Jesus, we have salvation in all its fullness. There is nothing lacking. In him we are saved to the uttermost. We are saved thoroughly. We are delivered from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. We are washed and forgiven, made new, sealed by the Spirit, adopted into the family of God, brought into the universal church. Ephesians 1.3 says we have every spiritual blessing. And friends, we are saved eternally. We will reign with Him in the new creation. And we learn here why we can be sure that true salvation endures forever. Because Jesus never dies. His eternal life secures us. 
Because as our eternal priest, he is always interceding for us. Romans 8 famously says this, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is that true? Because Romans 8 says Jesus is interceding for us. That's why persecution and hardship and spiritual warfare and death don't cause us to lose our position before God. That's why we have security even when we sin. 1 John 2 says, My little children, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The priesthood of Jesus is of absolutely vital importance because that is how we stand secure in our salvation that he purchased for us with his own death because he always lives interceding for us and that's far better than anything the old priest could do. But this brings us to the sixth reason why Jesus' priesthood is better. He is without sin. Here's another great verse. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. The Levitical priests weren't sinless. They had to offer sacrifices not just for everybody else's sins, but for theirs too. Even the high priests had to do this. On the Day of Atonement, he had to offer a bull for his sins and he had to offer other offerings every day. Even the holiest Levitical priest was a sinner, always sacrificing for himself. But Jesus is without sin. And that's not because he wasn't truly human. Oh, friends, he was very human, authentically, totally human. He had to taste hardship and temptation. Hebrews 2.17 said he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus encountered the sorrows of this life and the temptations that are common to people, and he never sinned. And in this, we see with great clarity what a perfect mediator he is. He is human just like us, fully and authentically. So he can perfectly represent us to God. And he can perfectly represent God to us. Because like God, he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has the character of God, his moral perfection and righteousness. He is not guilty of sin. He is not defiled by it. And the final two phrases here speak of Jesus' ascension. He has been separated. He has been set apart from all humans by his exaltation. Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus is exalted. Jesus presently is at the right hand of the throne of God, mediating God's rule to the cosmos. And why is that? Because of his sinlessness and his perfect obedience to the Father to the point that he died on the cross for you and me. And in his sinless character and in the exaltation that he enjoys, he is far better than anything about the old priest. But this brings us to the last reason why Jesus' priesthood is better. Because he has offered the ultimate sacrifice. Look at verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. How many sacrifices were offered under the old system? Thousands? Millions? 
But Jesus is a better priest because he has just offered one supreme sacrifice. Superior in its effect. It has brought about a fuller and better salvation than anything achieved in the Old Testament system. Superior in its uniqueness. His sacrifice stands alone. Superior in its finality. It is never to be repeated. It's once for all. Superior in its offering. Jesus didn't offer an animal to die for human sin. He made propitiation by bearing our sin in his body on the cross. The superiority of Jesus' self-sacrifice is something we're going to talk about a lot more in coming weeks, especially in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 25 says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Catholic Church teaches every time the Mass is observed, Jesus is re-sacrificed. So hundreds of thousands of times a day, all over the world, he is sacrificed again and again. Friend, don't you believe it? Jesus died once at Calvary, and that one sacrifice is sufficient to put sin away forever. It is sufficient to buy a people for God's own possession. It is sufficient to save you. And that one sacrifice is vastly better than every sacrifice under offered under the old economy. So our author concludes like this in verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The Old Testament law appointed priests who were weak, sinful humans who carried out the features of their covenant, which was good, but ultimately insufficient to achieve all that God intended for mankind. But the Father has appointed the Son to be our ultimate priest, and Jesus is a better high priest than the Levitical priests of Judaism because he's a priest like Melchizedek, who's greater than Levi. Because the Scriptures testify the Levitical priesthood will become obsolete. Because his priesthood and the covenant it establishes is secured by God's oath. Because his priesthood lasts forever and it offers complete salvation. And because Jesus is without sin and he has offered the ultimate supreme sacrifice. Now that's a ton of theology this morning. What should we take from this? Let me speak first to those of you who are here who have never trusted Jesus in a saving way. Or maybe you're here today and you just you don't know where you stand. Hebrews 7.19 says, In Jesus a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Friends, life is tough and it is painful and it is disappointing and it's hard to endure without hope. Hopelessness leads to despair and self-destruction. So everybody tries to cobble hope together for themselves, right? We hope for retirement, so we worship our bank account. Or we hope for political change, so we trust politicians. Or we hope for environmental change, so we become conservationists. Or we hope for social change, so we become activists. Whatever our hope is, that's what we live for. That's what we worship. But friend, striving for the things of this world will not give you real hope because it won't solve your truest problem, which is that you are dead in your sins. And the solution to that is not activism and environmentalism and politics and money. No, friends, what you need is a savior. Because God is holy and you are not. Because God is righteous and you're a sinner in thought and deed. You've done what he's forbidden. You failed to observe what he's commanded. We've all sinned. We each have sinned. We all stand under his just judgment of hell. And we deserve his endless fury. But there is good news, which is there is salvation available. There is a mediator who bridges the chasm that stands between us and a holy God. And that mediator is Jesus, who is God the Son and who became a man, who lived a perfect sinless life, who died on the cross, taking our sin and its penalty on himself, who is risen from the dead bodily, and who is reigning today as our priestly king. And salvation is available only through him. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And how are we saved? Jesus says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. We've got to turn away from our old life of sin by turning to Jesus, casting ourselves upon his mercy, trusting him because of who he is, God and man, and what he has done, dying for us and rising from the dead. That's the only way of salvation. 
And this passage invites you, if you've never trusted him, to come to him. And you will find a true and enduring and better hope than anything this world offers. The hope of eternal life in the new creation. But if you are a believer, what should you take from this morning's message? The next verse, Hebrews 8.1, says this. Now the point in what we're saying is this. Here's the application. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Friend, today if you know Jesus, you should have great confidence today. Because your hope is not in the Old Testament system that barred you from access to God, which could not save you to the uttermost. No, if you know Jesus today, your hope is in the ever-living, sinless Savior who is pleading for you personally before the Father and will do so forever. You stand secure by the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, by His endless resurrection life, by the Father's word and oath. But don't let that security make you fall into the sin that the Hebrews experienced. Friends, it is possible to become spiritually lazy and overconfident, to begin to coast and drift. That leads to disaster. Friend, don't coast. Don't drift away from Jesus. Instead, we also need to draw near to God through our great mediator to enjoy the access he has given us. Access we saw last week in which he invites us even into the very throne room of the Father where we will live forever. Access that invites us to bring our problems in this life to him right now. Friend, hear me on this. We don't have the problem Job had. We don't lack a mediator with God. And although at times in this life we might feel like Job felt, we might feel alone in times of hardship, we might feel like God is distant. If you know God through Jesus Christ, those feelings are false. Because God is there, accessible, available, a very present help in times of trouble. Jesus is in the Father's presence interceding for you. And so Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Believing friends, draw near to God through Christ. Hold fast your confidence to the end. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And bring your problems to the Father through the priesthood of the Son. And you will receive the well-timed help that you need. You will be increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus. He will perfect you in, across the course of your life so that in the end you will stand before Him glorified, saved to the uttermost enjoying the endless bliss of the new creation. May it come soon. Let's pray.